This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Circularity Conference in cyberspace, but physically in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the voices of Circularity 20, the unrelenting rise of sustainable finance, why Silicon Valley is turning to green chemistry, and reflections on the circular economy. We're running in circles this week on 350. It's August 28th, 2020, the waning days of summer 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me all the way from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. So great to talk to you. I feel like I've seen quite a bit of you this week on the uh, <laughs> interwebs, uh, on the live stream, on the virtual event platform that uh, was uh, Circularity 20. Uh, you know, this was our first all virtual conference and you know as we strive to do to make it not just a glorified webinar i think we succeeded pretty well but how was your week my week is pretty good um the hiccups of a, of a, a first time or were were a little frustrating um and, and but i really really loved being able to talk to so many people i don't know if you tried out the networking feature that was associated with the conference. It was just, it was like speed dating, <laughs> only in a business setting. Um, and I, I met so many uh, wonderful people. I was worried. That was one thing I was worried about, really, um, when, when, when we couldn't do this live, you know, in person. Um, we were live, but, but in person uh, was the network, you know, that, that aspect of it. And that was fun. So this was a little button on the platform where you could click and would instantaneously be connected to some other human at the conference without knowing yes. anything who it was without being able to specify they would just show up and you would have five minutes with them mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. i confess i did not do it i was a little apprehensive about it and maybe in the same way i never did speed dating i don't know but uh i i and, and there was a lot of other things to do so i did not i will i promise i will do it at verge in a couple months um but uh yeah that was cool what about your experience? How would you really enjoy? You know, it was just, uh, it was all really interesting and, you know, trying to replicate the great parts of events that we do in person, online, the connectivity, the spontaneity, the random acts of things, things you didn't necessarily expect to see or see happen, the ability to engage with the audience. Um, you know, it was a... Mild version of that. We'll get it'll get better and better. But what blew me away was the audience. The audience always blows me away mm. at how receptive. First of all, 
we had international. Well, yeah, international, all that. We had 850 people at Circularity last year, which was the first event in, in Minneapolis. We expected to have 1,500 in Atlanta, which is the original location of this year's event. As you know, Heather, we had more than 12,000 registrants for this event. And granted, it was free to attend, paid for by our great, great sponsors. Um, and But but I, I think it's in the same way last year, people looked around the room, 850 people in this auditorium or this hotel ballroom, and said, wow, I had no idea so many people were interested in circular economy. Um, it was even more so by obviously an order of magnitude and then some this year when people said, wow, look at this amazing community. And so to me, the, the content obviously is important. If that's what brings everyone together, there were some great, great sessions and we're going to play some clips from some of them in, an, in just a few minutes. Uh, but the way the audience engages, the way they support one another during the sessions, the way they just give of themselves and offer them their their partnership, their counsel, their their experience, the way they're not afraid to ask questions and not afraid to challenge things that seem maybe not to their sensibilities. Uh, I love that. And that's to yeah. me what makes these events so great. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm going to just give you one more quick thing from my networking experience. I actually ended up connecting with a conscious consumer. So someone not necessarily part of our, you know, who wouldn't be at our live, our in-person event. Um, and she, her perspective was so refreshing and just helpful for me as a journalist. So yeah, truly, truly wonderful experience. Well, uh, it was a wonderful experience and, and a great, great week. And kudos to Lauren Phipps, our uh, senior analyst covering circularity and she and her colleague Suzuki who built the program and ran the program and Lauren hosted the uh, main stage program you and I each had bit parts interviewing people we'll play some of those clips uh, in a minute or so um, but and as always the great great green biz team uh, all 30 of us who everybody stepped up and with this new platform this new way of doing conferences you know they just as they always do just kind of made it happen. But enough of that. Let's get into the substance and let's start with the Week in Review. For this Week in Review, I think we're going to just take on some stories that don't happen to have anything to do or not much to do with the circular economy. Actually, one of them does. Um, because there's other things going on in the world, and uh, I think that's important to uh, to follow those. And first thing to follow is the money. Yes, and you follow the money. Uh, you wrote this week about the rise and rise of sustainability-linked finance. Um, everything from green bonds to sustainability bonds and, and everything in between. Just uh, give me a rundown of what inspired you to write this particular column in this moment. Well, this is not a new story. So we've written, we've covered uh, climate bonds and green bonds and the like in the past. Uh, there is a, a rising tide of sustainability-linked loans. So the thing with bonds is bonds, you're borrowing money. A company is borrowing money specifically to take on an environmental project or a sustainable project, which is more around both aligning the 
social and environmental piece. Some are just social, social bonds. There's plastic reduction bonds. There's blue bonds that have to do with ocean and water related things and ESG bonds. Those have been around, but there's also sustainability linked loans, which is a loan from a financial institution or a line of credit, sometimes millions or even billions of dollars, where the interest rate is linked in part to the, sustain the company's sustainability performance. So the borrower sets a number of goals, and if they meet those goals, their interest rate either goes down or stays low, and if they don't, it goes up. So that, to me, uh, in the combination of these two financial instruments, which, by the way, are both growing significantly, uh, globally, uh, actually sustainability linked loans more so in Europe, and I think the bonds as well. But but clearly we've seen a lot of companies uh, from Verizon to uh, and Visa to Apple uh, and Google take on these in, in big ways. Um, this is just a really interesting and fast growing part. In fact, it's uh, there. This is one of the you know I think biggest bright spots in finance where bonds themselves uh, are generally flat or down in terms of the volume, this is up considerably. So finally, Heather, we are at a point where sustainable, a company's sustainability performance affects the cost of money. Mm -hmm. And I said, mm -hmm. when that happens, game on. Game on. Game on. I love, I love those loans. I love those loans. Yeah. So uh, this is just a really fascinating area of this, you know, watch this space, but don't have to watch it for long. It's, it's happening right now. Uh, but let's switch over to a story that you did about forests. Uh, again, not a new story, but there is this trillion trees movement. Uh, it's putting down roots, as you said. What's, what's growing on? So the trillion trees commitment, uh, the idea that planting one trillion trees and companies and, and NGOs and civil society should be involved with this um, kind of was really one of these, these things that captured Davos earlier this year, um, the World Economic Forum gathering in, in January. And so the movement was announced. Well, this is the first 1T org is the, or is the, uh, the collaboration of World Economic Forum and American forests and their first chapter, the first actual chapter behind this movement is been, has been formed in the, the U.S. And so, um, frankly, it's kind of, uh, I don't know if the, the timing is ironic or however you want to, it's very, I guess it's poignant, poignant in particular, um, but, you know, here amid the forest fires, which are devastating California, I don't know what the the acreage is today, but as of Tuesday, it was uh, 1.2 million acres um, and counting. And um, meanwhile, you have several dozen uh, organizations that are committing to planting trees, uh, to, to putting their money up to plant trees. You've got pledges from Microsoft and Salesforce. We heard about these before, but what's what's different right now is, is that they're coming together not just to share, uh, you know, like, oh, look at our pledges, but to actually share resources. So like collaboratively speaking, they're working on a calculator that helps organizations figure out how you uh, account for the carbon, right, that's that's uh, that's sequestered by the trees that, that you're planting or restoring or, um, for, you know, there's or preserving, conserving, if you will. Um, there's also some cities involved, which was actually particularly interesting to me. The city of Dallas is 
pledging to restore and conserve close to 14.8 million trees. Um, They apparently have a huge canopy and they've committed to doing that, to saving it. Um, Tucson, Arizona is planning to plant a million trees over the next decade. Uh, I spoke with the MasterCard Chief Sustainability Officer, Christina Cloberdance, um, and she said that they became involved with the organization because they didn't have the, 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 the experience and the expertise internally to figure out where they should be putting their money, right? So these companies are making these pledges, but like, where do you, where's the best sequestration for your buck, if you will, like where the best carbon removal for your buck. So that's the idea behind this organization. They want to share resources, share, uh, you know, get get the right expertise out into the field and get this moving more quickly. So it's a it's a collaborative, collective movement um, meant to accelerate the actions and, and um, get other companies involved. You know, this Trillion Trees program is is not uncontroversial. Pardon the double negative there. Right. Which is to say <laughs> that, you know, there are uh, trees. You know, how do you measure that? First of all, can we even plant a trillion trees? I mean, right. how does that happen right. and where? There's a huge landmass, obviously, that it would take to do that. How do we ensure that they fulfill their potential uh, as, as uh, carbon sequestration sinks? Or is it baked in that a third of them will die or get burned down or hit by lightning or chopped down by foresters. I, I don't know. There's just something about that that's unclear. And then, and then the other part of it that worries me is that, you know, we're not going to stop climate change with, you know, just this. We also obviously have to cut, dr- drastically cut emissions. And so if planting a trillion trees becomes an excuse not to have to do anything else, it's like, you know, I can drive my SUV anywhere I want. It's I'm planting trees. You know that old offset thing that we long ago became a, you know, seen as a way to buy absolution as opposed to actually changing anything. I'm just concerned about that. What are you seeing in this initiative to sort of mitigate my concerns? Yeah, so I I totally agree with you on that. Um, I do think that, and if you look deeper into the language of this, it's not just planting. Um, even though that's kind of got the headlines earlier this year, it is about taking this, the forests that already exist and managing them you know, more sustainably. It is about creating jobs um, and keeping the, the forests that we already have intact. It is about what you do in the aftermath of what's happening out there in California. How do you manage that process um, in, in, of restoration? What's the best way to do that? And so I, I, I get why. And, and the other thing I have to say is, is I am sure there are some organizations that are involved with this effort that are just paying lip service to the idea, ooh, the trees, uh, like, like, yeah, now we're okay. I, I don't know. The companies involved are pretty, um, they're doing a lot of other things. Salesforce, Microsoft, MasterCard, they have a lot of very meaningful initiatives that they're also working on in tandem with this. So I feel like part of part of what I see as the as the exciting thing about this particular movement is number one, it 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 gets gets things in the short term, right? So while we're while we're developing these carbon removal technologies and trying to come up with better energy plans and and circular economy initiatives and so forth, as we develop those other things, you have to do everything you can. So I see Syria as part of that. Um, I also one thing that particularly intrigued me is um, the the agroforestry element of this. 
I, I, I talked to, um, Jad Daly, the, who's, who leads the American forests. And we talked a little bit about the, you know, Vermont, for example, has like, they're very forested state already, but now, but now this enables like skinny forests next to farms, like between farms and rivers and streams and so forth that have been challenged by the agricultural runoff. There's a, there's a great synergy there. So I feel like every little bit ha- helps. And um, cer- this is certainly not the solution, but it is, it is a helpful component of the solution. Well, speaking of nature-based solutions, let's take our third story here, which comes out of the Circularity Con- 20 conference this week, uh, specifically the Ray of Hope Prize that's uh, created by the Ray C. Anderson Foundation and uh, in the Biomimicry Institute. And for, I think, the second or third year, we've we've uh, partnered with them to uh, have the finalists and announce the winners. We did on stage uh, on Tuesday this week, uh, E-Concrete. What a great company. This is a, a Tel Aviv-based company that designs and creates innovative concrete structures for seawalls and other coastal projects that mimic local marine ecosystems, which is, of course, what biomimicry is all about. And I love the backstory here. The the CEO is the chief scientist, uh, uh, Shimrit Perkol-Finkel, uh, grew interested in in this as a diver, diving in 30 countries, and saw how concrete structures actually harm marine ecosystems even after decades in the water because the chemical composition is one thing uh, which degrades in the water over time, and the smooth, featureless surface uh, it makes it harder for marine life to to actually have uh, to to grow there like they would on a coral reef and actually creates the conditions for invasive species to thrive. This is just a great story and a great solution. Yes. And if you keep reading and you should, uh, there were the runners up are pretty darn impressive too. I mean, just any one of these companies could have won the award that the the solutions for eliminating pigments and dyes, uh, solutions for increasing the toughness based on mantis shrimp, like physiological, biological component, the anatomy of a mantis shrimp and the, and the, the club that it uses to, uh, to crush its prey. And, and someone took that inspiration and is making, you know, materials out of it. It's just really impressive, incredibly impressive uh, uh, group of companies here. Yeah, we could do a, a year's worth of shows on biomimicry alone and just the innovation, <laughs> uh, the things that, that come out of that. Um, uh, this, yeah, this is a great article that uh, talks about the finalists and then talks about the winner, um, but it, just scratching the surface of all that's possible when we start to mimic nature to create sustainability solutions. So Heather, you've queued up a number of clips from this week's Circularity 20 conference. Uh, some of, I think, four of your uh, go-to uh, sessions that you wanted to share. Uh, let's get into them. What do you got? Well, I'm going to feature some sessions from the first day uh, of this, the conference. I've got more in, in line for the next episode. But one of them had to do with your great conversation with Dame Ellen MacArthur, founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, our great partner in this event. Um, of course, 
an organization has been instrumental in catalyzing the, the action behind various issues like plastics and food waste. I want to ask you quickly what your highlight was from that conversation. You probably had several, but I'll tell you mine in a moment. Wow. Uh, you know, it's hard because I, when, you, when you're in the moment doing these interviews, you're in the moment and it's sometimes hard to get perspective. I guess um, I'm always uh, impressed by the overall uh, optimism <laughs> that comes out of Ellen and, and her the 100 or 120 people working at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in the UK. Um, and it's just relentless. Uh, pandemics, recessions, social strife, you name it, nothing gets in the way. And uh, and I tried to even knock her off that a little bit and just, you know, pressing her <laughs> on how is this moment, is it mm -hmm. affecting anything? And no, it's actually pointing out, uh, you know, why this is even more important. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the reality is, and this week showed and the massive turnout we had at Circularity uh, proves in some ways that the interest in this has not at all gone away. In fact, quite the opposite. So th that's part of it, but I don't have a specific, what's your okay. answer to that? So my answer to that, and it does actually have with, with what, what you were pressing her on, um, which is systems change, right? How do you get this, this mm. massive system to change and support this economy? So she had some thoughts on that, as well as the link between, uh, and you asked her outright, between climate change and circularity. So here is Dame Ellen MacArthur on those two topics. The system has to change. And I think more than ever, the companies involved in that system, they want to change. Now, when we started the dialogue with them five, six years ago, the comment was, no one's really interested in plastic. No one's talking about plastic. This is, the big deal is climate change. Climate change is obviously absolutely vital, but the amount of plastic leaking to the oceans is also a really big deal. And the conversation has moved from no one's really interested in plastic to having global commitments, to having you know, pacts within regions, within countries this is this is something that's moved actually really phenomenally quickly in five years because it has to and I think the brands know it has to because they don't want to be creating plastic that ends up floating down a river they want to get their product to the consumer to the user to the people but actually ultimately they can't do it on their own and I think what was needed was everybody has to come together to agree what we design so that there is a system that this plastic can flow through be valorized by and then it go back into that system again one thing we have looked at very closely at through the foundation is the link between circular economy and climate change and how circular economy plays a very real role in sticking to those targets. And you know, when you look at the targets, 55% of that can be achieved through switching to renewables, but there's a further 45% that can't. And that's systemic change that's needed in the way we make things in the embedded energy of products. And when we took just five things, we took steel, aluminium, cement, food and plastic. And we looked at switching to circular principles and practices. And that took half of that remaining 45%, just those five things. The circular economy really does play a role in sticking to climate targets and, and, and achieving climate targets because we have to change the system as well as just the energy. The other thing that struck me in the conversation with Ellen now that you're <laughs> refreshing my memory is the conversation about how do we change consumption? Uh, what needs to happen uh, you know, because we can't have necessarily circular economy with the same consumption pattern. So just a great conversation. And all of these, by the way, uh, are going to be online uh, coming up in the next week or so. So we'll make sure to link to those. But what else you got there, Heather? 
So my knock your socks off presentation award goes to Audrey Choi, the chief marketing officer and chief sustainability officer of Morgan Stanley. She did such an impactful presentation on ways to engage the C-suite. So how do you talk about circular economy with the chief financial officer, the chief marketing officer, the chief HR officer? Um, and I just loved that presentation. Um, and I, I, I want to play more. I want to play a clip from her tee up. Um, and I just I think just anyone in this business has to listen to this presentation. It just really was that good. I know I don't need to tell this audience in particular why plastic waste is an environmental issue. How many billions of tons of plastic waste have accumulated in our rivers, oceans, and landfills? How few of those tons we've actually recycled? And how that plastic waste is disintegrating into microparticles that are coming back to us in our food, our water, and our salt. I will, however, share one calculation that we did. If you took all the plastic waste currently sitting in nature and turned it into one plastic bag, it will be large enough to literally bag the earth. And if we continue with business as usual, in 30 years, we will have enough plastic waste to double bag the earth. Even putting aside the environmental burden that that represents, as business leaders, we should be offended by this irrational economic waste. We are literally throwing away up to $120 billion in economic value every year just in single-use plastic packaging alone. I can't think of another instance in which we would think it a smart business decision to take a finite natural resource, turn it into a product that we use for 12 minutes on average, and then throw it away. And the damage it creates in just the marine environment alone is estimated at $2.5 trillion in lost productivity every year. When I speak with business leaders about plastic waste reduction, I find they often care about the issue, but they say one or both of the following things. Either they can't do anything about it because they're not a major part of the plastic value chain, or they can't do anything about it because the problem is just too big. Plastic is everywhere. Now, I agree that no one of us alone can solve the issue. It's a global economy-wide issue. But the fact that it is everywhere should actually be something that inspires us all to action. Precisely because plastic is currently woven into virtually every single industry around the world, I believe that every single one of us has the potential to be part of the solution. Indeed, I believe that in virtually every C-suite, you could go around the table and identify why just about every C-suite officer has a reason to care about plastic waste reduction and can benefit by trying to address the problem. And really what she talked about of how you talk to all these different C-suite officers is, is goes beyond circularity. It really is go, it goes to the whole field of sustainability. Uh, I think this is really important work and, and critical to the work that corporate sustainability people do uh, in just being able to translate this, uh, all of this world that we live in and swim in and understand that uh, not everybody thinks in those same terms. Okay, so what's next? OV. OV. Got to talk about OV Mulhelly. Mulhelly. I can't pronounce yeah. his name. I'm sorry. Yeah, you got OV it. Mulhelly. OV Mulhelly, a former yeah. fullback, all pro yep. fullback for the Atlanta Falcons and the Baltimore Ravens. Yep. Uh, uh, found his way to sustainability a number of years ago when his uh, – his baby daughter, born prematurely, uh, couldn't take her home when she was finally ready to come home. Uh, 
because the air quality in Atlanta was not good and they didn't want to expose this frail, uh, still preemie baby to that air. And he all of a sudden said, whoa, this is personal. And he started this organization, Ovi Mohaley Foundation, does some amazing work with youth. Uh, but yeah, uh, what do you got from him? So the moment I want to share is his thoughts about why, and actually it's a challenge. He challenged the business community to work harder on including environmental justice considerations in their strategy. So here's that moment. As a two-time All-Pro NFL fullback who had the influence and had the platform, but just wasn't focused on the environment, I realized that I wasn't doing my job as a father and as a citizen of this planet if I didn't use sports to talk more about uh, sustainability. So I really think that it's an issue where we all want to do the right thing. We all care about our fellow human beings, but we just don't understand how important it is to involve everyone to really solve this. I've been in the green space for about 10 years. And when I go from conference to conference, I always ask people to look to their left and their right and to see if this the conference or its participants or you know the green space that they work and live in looks like America, looks like the world. And they always shake their hands and say, no, it doesn't. But it's the same thing year after year. We're getting closer, but we need to move much faster because this problem is getting much bigger. And with COVID-19, it's kind of just shined a light on how this pandemic is kind of showing who are the haves and who are the have-nots. Who are the ones who are going to be disproportionately affected by COVID-19 are the underserviced or the poor communities, uh, communities of color. Same thing with this environmental crisis. The ones who are going to be really uh, damaged by it, if we don't do something to move closer to circularity, are poor communities, underserviced communities, communities of color. So the question is, why aren't we doing more as an environmental community to make sure that these kids who want to be part of the solution, these kids who want to be a part of uh, trying to help make things better, are invited to the table to help us and help themselves? And you've got one more, Heather. What do you queued up for us? Yeah, and I'll I'll just note that both the the last two speakers were from Atlanta, where we originally were supposed to have the event. Um, But Jasmine Crow is the founder and CEO of Gooder. Um, They are an organization focused on food waste and distributing food collected from organizations throughout Atlanta and now now elsewhere. Um, And she makes the case for why every company, everyone, no matter its industry, needs to have a strategy for addressing food waste. So here is the primary call to action from her presentation. A simple Google search, what happens to extra food at the end of the night, led me to something that angered me. Angered me more than very few things have in my lifetime. When I learned that over 72 billion pounds of perfectly good food in this country was going to waste when nearly 42 million people were going to bed hungry, I became upset. I couldn't understand it. We literally had two problems, food waste and hunger that could virtually solve themselves. And so I thought this has to be being done. Why isn't this being done already? And so I went out and I started to ask the question. Every restaurant I would go to, I would ask them at the end of the night, what do you guys do with your surplus food? And restaurant after restaurant, grocery store after grocery store, I'm talking about any event venue I went to, this question was asked by me. And every answer was always the same. We throw it away. Oh, we were sued one time, and so we can no longer give the food away, so we have to throw it away. And I would go and I would research, and I would try and find lawsuits and try and figure out how was it that someone was being sued for doing something good. And the reality is I could never find them. What I did see 
was that in 1996, under the direction of President Bill Clinton, the Good Samaritan Act was introduced, actually protecting businesses for donating food in good faith. What I realized is that these businesses weren't educated. And I set about on a path to begin to talk to businesses about the benefits of donating their edible surplus food. And it was a journey that was very lonely. I can't tell you how many people said, oh, this will never work. Businesses will never pay for that. And what I wanted people to understand is that businesses are already paying millions of dollars a year to throw away perfectly good food. Waste is not a new spin on anybody's line item. This is something that every business is paying for, but how can we get businesses to think about what is going into landfills differently? And I said about it on that course, lonely, believing that it would happen. If anything kept me motivated, I knew that if nothing else, by doing this work every single day, someone who would otherwise go hungry would have food. Flash forward till today, Gooder is not only just in Atlanta, Georgia, we're servicing multiple markets. We're launching this week in New Jersey and Philadelphia. We're bringing on amazing customers like Merck, Netflix, the world's busiest airport, Atlanta, Hartsfield, Atlanta, Jackson, the Atlanta Hawks, and many more. And what we begin to help people understand is that food is a precious resource and that it doesn't need to be in landfills. No business can ever be truly sustainable until they start to understand what's happening with the food waste at their business. And I would have customers say to me, oh, well, we're a tech company. We're not in the food business. And I would say to them, well, you have 100,000 employees across 20 different campuses and you serve food every day. You're in the food business. And so while that's something that I still have to teach a lot of people, it's a message that I'm still trying to get to resonate what I can tell you now having helped divert nearly 5 million pounds of edible surplus food from landfills, a huge increase that we've seen since March through our COVID-19 response. We've gotten so much food to families that I hope that everyone can understand that if we wanna create a true circular economy, we cannot leave food waste out of the picture. Well, thanks for those, Heather, and we'll have more clips from days two and three coming up on next week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor at Green Biz, and I'm joined by my colleague Lauren Phipps, Director and Senior Analyst for the Circular Economy. She and many of the other folks on the Green Biz team have been working hard and planning circularity for months. Um, She's been leading the charge, and circularity happened this week. (laughs) Um, So we're here to catch up about some takeaways. So Lauren, hello. (laughs) Hi. Um, so Circularity 20 was originally supposed to be in Atlanta uh, back in May, but obviously, you know, the world had other plans. So I'm curious about how it felt to be doing Circularity 20 online. <laughs> well, it definitely felt like a long time coming, um, given that we postponed and then, of course, had to bring the event online. And Honestly, I was really nervous beforehand because we've never done a large-scale virtual event. We kind of had this audacious goal of bringing together 10,000 folks virtually, and um, I was really, really pleased to see how the event came together. I mean, we're competing with email, childcare, work, life, and so I wasn't sure if people were going to be present, but it was so clear how hungry people are for connection, and I think especially in our 
intellectual worlds. Um, people were so eager to be present, to engage, and to really have some hard conversations because, um, yeah, this is our, our opportunity of, of massive disruption to kind of have an opening and and take advantage of this this disruptive time despite everything that's going on to, to try to do something different and something a bit better. Totally. This being a disruptive time definitely felt like something that continued to come up in sessions that I was a part of. Um, and I'm curious if there's anything that happened during circularity that surprised you or that was revelatory. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, one thing that I talked about in the opening of the event um, he said that in the context of the circular economy, we're, we're tasked with designing this bold vision of the future while it literally feels like the foundation below us is, is crumbling and, you know, disruption. It's pandemic, fires, climate change, racism, hurricanes, economic recession. Like, given all of that, what surprised me is that people don't have time for nonsense right now. Like, we don't have time to have the same conversations. And I was super heartened by the fact that people were showing up to get real. And they were showing up to push back, to hold each other accountable for goals that they might have set or aspirations that they might be stating that it's, you know, if there's no obvious path that they're going to achieve that, we have to talk about it. And we can't kind of hide behind some of the same talking points that we have been because the world looks different and there there's kind of a higher standard of, of where we're at. And I think people, especially, you know, hiding a bit behind their computers, but I think emboldened by this moment, they didn't have time for, for some of the things that I think typically we might get away with in a virtual world or an in-person world rather. Right. Um, I feel like that's something that stood out to me too. I was a part of a session um, where someone said, we need to move past these pilot projects. And this is something you mentioned in your remarks on Wednesday too, just like we need to scale <laughs> everything that we're doing um, to try to accelerate the circular economy. So I feel like this week has been super exciting um, and people try to do that and call, well, not call each other out, but something like that. Just being more real. Yeah, well, I mean, call each other in. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, we have to name what's going on that isn't aligned with this vision that we're trying to, to build of, of this better world that is more sustainable, that does keep our resources better and for longer, that does include everyone and not just, uh, just some people. Um, and I think, you know, while people are feisty and while people are passionate, we're also here as a really strong community. And that's definitely a takeaway that I had of the reminder that, oh, yeah, there are, I mean, a community that by the end of the week, I think we had 12,000 registrants and, and folks popping around the event. Like that is an unprecedented number, in my opinion, for folks to be talking about the circular economy. Last year, we were pleased and delighted that we sold out the in-person event at 850 people. So to get that many people at the virtual table, that are here to be a part of the conversation and honestly are here to help each other, that I think is um, a great reminder to just ground ourselves in when we do feel relatively isolated right now. So we talked about what surprised you, what was revelatory. I'm curious if there's any things that stand out to you as learnings um, from this event. Oh, I mean, I, it will take us weeks to process everything and I know that your team will be reporting on a lot of it. Um, but, you know, some of the big themes and takeaways that were expected were, you know, the need for collaboration and partnerships, especially pre-competitive collaboration. Um, there was a launch of the U.S. Plastics Pact, 
which is super exciting. And that's kind of going to chart our course, especially in North America or the U.S. towards actually achieving some of the audacious goals um, of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's new plastics economy. Um, you know, conversations around metrics and really grounding in the need to have consistent metrics and be able to demonstrate what's better and, and why we're doing things. But I think the biggest takeaway that I have and the biggest learning is that people are really ready to connect the dots between racial justice and with the circular economy. And this came up across the program. And I think it's not surprising given given what's going on in the world right now, especially given on given what's going on in North America and in, in Wisconsin. Um, but this has been the story, I mean, for for so long, but especially heightened in the last little bit. But people are having these conversations in ways that I have not seen before. And I felt like last year, while we had to sort of throw in little bits here and here and there, everyone was ready to have those discussions, whether, you know, it was a talk about informal economies and waste collection. And, you know, we talk about designing out waste and in, in so doing, we, we leave out the pre-existing realities and we leave out some of the communities that are most impacted by this. I mean, there was the conversation around circularity and equity in cities with um, Mark Chambers from New York, who's in their sustainability department, and then Jose Manuel Moyer, who is the CEO of Algramo. And Jose was talking about the poverty tax, um, where folks in, in lower income communities, if you can only buy a small amount of something versus in bulk, you're paying more for something. If even conversations around durable design, I mean, it is the cycle of, of course, buying something durable that you can have for a very long time is going to be better. But if you can't afford to buy that nice thing, then you're spending more over the duration of, of your, your life. So, you know, waste energy session, talking about environmental justice. Um, there's so many sessions where this was just palpable. And that was really heartening for me. Um, I think Mark, as I mentioned, he said it so well. And something that I think we're all thinking about is that now is not the time for optical allyship. And I think so too. Now is not the time for optical circularity and optical allyship and how, how those go hand in hand. Like, we're tired. <laughs> we have enough to deal with. And if we're going to do something better, it has to actually be better for everyone. I feel like everything and all the sessions that you pointed out just now also were super resonant uh, for me. Like when when Mark mentioned the word opt or the phrase optical allyship, I was like, whoa, like I feel like I've been seeing that a lot over the last um, few months. So um, I'm curious about if you have a favorite part of the event. Oh. <sighs> This is less deep than what I was just saying, but <laughs> my favorite part of the event was honestly the video networking. I miss this community. I miss my work community of folks that, you know, when you care so deeply about the work that you do and, and we're, we're coming up against huge systems, you get close to the people that you work with and, and your colleagues that we look forward to seeing at events. So it was a true delight to get to, you know, meet folks that I would have met in person or maybe wouldn't have even gotten to go to the event and to hear from people who are in Colorado and San Francisco and just down the street in Oakland and then in Hong Kong and in Chile. Like there's folks from, I think, 
when I pulled the stat before the event, there was 108 different countries represented, and I would not be surprised if we got a bit higher than that. So it was really fun seeing people connecting, reminding myself and each other why we do this work and getting re-inspired to, to keep on doing it. Yeah, I feel like this is not the circumstances we anticipated this event going down, but it seems like it's been super amazing in helping get even more people um, in the know about what the circular economy is and drive more goals forward. So thanks for sharing your takeaways with me, Lauren. Um, I'm super excited to see what happens next in the circular economy. Thank you, Deanna. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And yeah, it was a great event. Thanks for your support and participation as well. A few weeks ago, the material innovation company Zymergen announced that green chemistry pioneer John Warner had joined the company, where he'll serve as a distinguished research fellow. John has long been at the forefront of efforts to align chemistry with sustainability and holds hundreds of patents that have brought green chemistry products to the mainstream. I thought the announcement was a good opportunity to catch up with him and with Josh Hoffman, the CEO and co-founder of Zymergen, about the state of green chemistry. Hello to both of you. Hi, Jill. Hi, thanks for having us. John, let's start with you. You've been running your own shop for many years in, in Massachusetts. Uh, why team up now with a Silicon Valley company? Uh, well, there's only so much you can do as an inventor. The, you know, the world doesn't need just the inventions. It needs the supply of the materials. You need to have that whole process for it to be sustainable from top to bottom. And so to be able to partner with Zymogen that's focused not only on the forefront of invention, but actually supplying the world with these materials, that's the, the necessary component to make this all work. So, uh, Josh, how did you view this opportunity joining forces with John Warner, who's uh, seen as the father, if not the co-father of green chemistry? Um, like an ice cream sundae? I mean, it's an incredible, <laughs> incredible opportunity. Uh, I, we were, I was honored and flattered that it was even a possibility. Um, we've known John. Uh, for you know almost a decade now I think been inspired by the work he's done always felt that there were strong potential complementarities between what our platform can do both in terms of kind of the molecular diversity we bring as well as the ability to manufacture uh, with the kinds of super creative super insightful super inspiring kind of approach to chemistry that John brings we really thought that it was a match made in heaven um, and so when the opportunity arose uh, I think we we tried to jump at it as quickly as possible. So what's the low-hanging fruit here? Zymogen plays in a lot of spaces, uh, bio-based films and adhesives, crop protection, plastics, personal care products, and I'm sure lots and lots of things I don't know about. Is there some particular space where you see a particular opportunity, Josh? Well, what I would say is the following. We think of ourselves as, you know, partnering with nature to unlock you know, to bring impossible materials to market, to be able to uh, identify the novel chemicals that nature can make that are differentiated in their core structure from the stuff you get uh, when you crack a hydrocarbon. And so, uh, you know, what I would say is we kind of think that taking John's insights and, uh, and creativity creates low-hanging fruit everywhere. Because what we're giving him, I hope, 
is a whole palette of chemical candy, right? Structures he's never imagined before, right? It's like taking, and, and I'm probably going to be super unfair, but if I think about what John was doing before, he was sketching with one charcoal pencil. And what we've given him is the entire, you know, not just the Crayola 64 crayon set, but a whole kind of collection of oil paints. Mm -hmm. And and that's super exciting, right? So I think what we've done is we've taken across the breadth of our applications, we've kind of turbocharged and given him the opportunity to help us see things we could never have imagined before. Okay, so John, you're a kid in a candy store with uh, 64 crayons making uh, yeah. chocolate sundaes. Yeah, so uh, sorry, sorry about the extended metaphors. I have two kids. But how do you know where to go? I mean, there's you know so many interesting areas: uh, circular economy, detoxification of everything, uh, water uh, stewardship and quality, low carbon solutions, carbon sequestration. Where where do you want to go with this? Everywhere, you know, the, the world has so many unmet needs. We need to do so many things with my, my edible palette that's been presented here. You know, we've got you know, nature's 3.8, you know, billion years of mastery, you know, as that's an entirely different portfolio of innovation and creativity that Zymogen, you know, so Zymogen is unlocking and, and decoding nature's textbook. If you look at the chemical material space broadly, it's a $3 trillion industry that's kind of growing at GDP, global GDP. And if you look at the product innovation that's come from that sector over the last 60 years, we've seen a huge decline in core product innovation from the post-war era through the kind of 70s to the 90s through the last 20 or 30 years where you functionally see no real core product innovation. And yet the world needs uh, new uh, material diversity. We need to create new, you know, w whether it's dealing with end of life, different end of life usage for plastics, whether it's new crop protection agents to allow us to feed the world, whether it's frankly the fact that a lot of these products, which are so, so important, are contributing to the fact that the planet's cooking, right? We've got to find solutions for that. And so what we're doing as a business is we've targeted a set of verticals that we believe are rapid adopters of new products, Right? We want to go to a place where we're the constraint on the time frame of adoption, not the industry. So that's why we're focused on electronics, we're focused on consumer care, and we're focused on agriculture today. And in all three of those, uh, John is incredibly helpful. It's also the case that we partner with folks as we look to expand. And so we're in relatively late stage conversations with somebody around a bunch of exciting stuff around packaging, for example, a place where John does well and has been very helpful uh, in, in charting a path forward. So what I would say is that, you know, we see opportunity for John to help us deliver the actual products in actually innovative ways in these core verticals. And as we do that, and this is where we're a business, the opportunities just kind of open up like uh, kind of one upon the other. Are you uh, following the lead of, of the customers who say we're looking for this solution or are you looking at solutions that you believe need, need to be out there and pushing them out and hope that if you build it, they come? How does no, that no, we, we tend much more to follow the customer. And this goes a little bit both, uh, this goes to something magic about our platform and about what we're doing. If you're a traditional versus a traditional chemical company, if you're a traditional company, tra traditional chemical and materials company, you're spending huge amounts of money billions of dollars of capex on the core the cracker for your core chemistry an ethylene cracker an after cracker whatever it is right and everything you sell has to hang off the end of that chain right if you've got an ethylene cracker by god you're going to sell stuff that hangs off the end of an ethylene chain right and guys like john uh and people less creative than john have spent lifetimes figuring out how to create stuff that might be of interest uh but that you can hang on the end of an ethylene chain 
But the problem is if you go to the customer, you can't, you can't listen to what they need. Right? I can't go to a customer and have a customer say, oh, I need X. Now, if X is met by, right, the, the answer is I need X. And my answer is, well, I've got an ethylene film and I've got some ethylene film and I've got some other ethylene film, like some polyethylene, right? Like it, it, you can't listen because of the nature of our platform in developing new materials and because of the nature of our manufacturing platform. I get to listen to what a customer wants and then come back and with a mix of software and creative people like John say, wow, I can solve that need. And that's a foundational, I mean, it seems silly, but that's a real revolution, I would argue, in the way the industry has interacted with customers. And it's, I mean, we believe it's going to be highly, highly disruptive. Yeah, reminds me of that old uh, Henry Ford line that he said, if I'd asked the customer what they wanted, it would be a faster horse. That's mm -hmm. right. Well, that's right. But Henry Ford also said you can have it in any color you like as long as it's black, Correct. which was fine until, you know, and I don't really know the history, so I'm probably going to be wrong here, but it's fine until Alfred Sloan and whatnot figured out how to make cars, paint cars in any color you wanted. Yeah, yeah. So, John, uh, green chemistry has been around, I don't know, 25, 30 years, uh, quite a while. And is it still seen as niche by the chemical industry or are some of the principles and practices starting to find their way into the mainstream? Or maybe have uh, lots of them have found their way into the mainstream a long time ago. What's, where's that mashup, if at all? So, so using the tools of chemistry and the principles of green chemistry, I would argue have been integrated into the chemical industry for decades that most major chemical companies you know have put the 12 principles as part of their stage gate process you know they have green chemistry um things it's not something they're wearing on their sleeve that they're they're proposed you know saying they're, they're doing but they're limited to the textbook of chemistry and so i would i would argue that the desire to use green chemistry is ubiquitous the ability to do green chemistry is the problem and that's the that's the beauty of unlocking the mechanisms of nature that while the um the the customer may not be able to articulate the need they can describe it, they can explain it, and we can then, with the tools of, of nature and biology, translate that into something that can be articulated at the molecular level. And, and that's the, the beauty is that when you think of any kind of human need in the materials world, there is an analog in nature. You know, whereas when you look at an ethylene molecule, it's kind of a big jump to, to see that, that analog, unless you just approach everything as, you know, you, you are a hammer and everything's a nail. And okay. so the, the diversity is, is what's so cool. So you, you can't really be a Silicon Valley company anymore without using the D word disruption. And I'm wondering for, for both of you, what are we disrupting here? Or what needs to be disrupted? Uh, Josh? So, I, look, I, I want to say that I think there's a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that have these great aspirations. They talk a great game about what they're doing. And what they're really trying to change is like life for a bunch of post-adolescent kids who walk down Valencia Street and don't actually know how to do their laundry or whatever. And uh, what I think we're doing, what I hope we're doing, is taking some of the most advanced technologies on the world, in the world, whether it's you know, modern advances in molecular biology, modern machine learning, cutting edge work in lab automation, uh, and integrating it together to try to bring an entirely new material palette. And so if that means, you know, to the world, and in so doing, bring better products, you know, give, give, allow people to live healthier lives and frankly, a cleaner planet. So am I disrupting the petrochemical industry? I don't know, sure. 
Um, but I, I think of it less around a kind of naive form of disruption, more about we're trying to do something foundational, which is use advanced technology to make the physical and material world a better place. Yeah. And that's the so, kind of thing that just, uh, it's, it's both more and less than disruption. Yeah. So John, let me ask you, uh, just to close this out, a, a little bit of a different question. Uh, a year from now, when you say, wow, this is exactly what I wanted to see happen when I teamed up with Zymergen, what happened? What happened is that there's this massive pipeline of products coming down the track and that are addressing all kinds of unmet needs that I could not possibly imagine doing last year. That's that's success, and I, I, I already, having been here for a few months, I, I just see it happening. Yeah. I'll just say it. I mean, John, we haven't talked about this, so I don't know. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. I would say that when we entered into this partnership, we both had – pretty high aspirations, but we were both realistic about ways in which it could be challenging. And I would say that the interactions so far have been everything I would have hoped and then some, and like we're seeing stuff I never could have imagined. Um, I mean, I'm super, well, super excited. We'll look forward to seeing some of that come to market. John Warner is the Distinguished Research Fellow at Zymergen and Josh Hoffman, the CEO and co-founder of Zymergen. Thanks to you both. Thank you Thanks, very much. John. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week, Circularity 20 edition. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned. And while you're there, check out our six free weekly e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And we welcome your comments, questions, tips, anything you want. Just email us at 350 at greenbiz.com and Heather cringed when I said anything you want because she fields that mailbox but <laughs> Heather and I <laughs> Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350 until next time from all of us here at Green Biz Group I'm Joel McCower thanks so much for tuning in This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com.